it really is wonderful to be here with you all this evening and you'll see that Pope Francis very obligingly published his Carina Amazonia just in time for my paper tonight so I've been able to slightly expand the title. But I thought I would explain to begin with where the title comes from and it's from this book, Joseph Piper, Leisure, the Basis of Culture, which I can't recommend too highly, particularly for those of us trapped in the bureaucracies of academic life, but for anyone who is yearning for a rediscovery of some of the depth and substance of language and knowledge in our rapidly disintegrating and superficial modern approach to these things. So Piper says the Greeks, Aristotle no less than Plato, as well as the great medieval thinkers, held that not only physical sensuous perception, but equally man's spiritual and intellectual <coughs> knowledge included an element of pure receptive contemplation, or as Heraclitus says, of listening to the essence of things. And that's the main focus of what I want to talk about tonight. Primarily in quite a positive reading of Pope Francis's environmental theology, but as you would expect, I do have a few little questions around the question of gender. And I ask those questions rather more robustly in the tablet which is being published on Friday, but I'll touch on them here. Um, in adopting this approach, I think the science of environmental degradation of the environmental crisis is absolutely essential and needs to be taken as seriously as we possibly can. But in my own engagement with Laudato Si and then very definitely with Corrida Amazonia, I'm convinced that Pope Francis recognizes the fundamental significance of language for changing our way of being in the world. If, as Heidegger says, we inhabit the house of language, Pope Francis recognizes that if we are to inhabit our common home, the earth, in a more sustainable, creative, and nurturing way, it's not enough just to know the science. And as you, some of you will know, Laudato Si is good on the science. But we also have to awaken a new kind of desire for the good and beautiful things of God's world, of God's creation. And I'm talking a bit around those things tonight, so I'm in no way dismissing the science, but I'm not a scientist. And I think scientific apocalyptic warnings of gloom and doom, well substantiated though they are, far from actually awakening desire, may be counterproductive. If people feel nihilistic and hopeless and apocalyptic, I'm not entirely sure we get the energy that we need from a kind of appreciation of the world to do enough to change our ways of being in it. So I focus on language tonight. And I've broken my talk up into these different titles, um, being and belonging, silence and beholding, speaking and communicating, silencing and violating, and language of the maternal self. So we'll see how far I get through that. Um, but that's what I'm intending anyway. So let me begin with being and belonging. Central to Laudato Si 
is Pope Francis's call for what he calls a bold cultural revolution at the level of anthropology. He says modern anthropocentrism has paradoxically ended up prizing technical thought over reality since the technological mind sees nature as an insensate order. The intrinsic dignity of the world is thus compromised. Now that term, the intrinsic dignity of the world, is to me a doctrinal change that is a glorious revolution waiting to happen at the very heart of the Catholic doctrine of creation. The concept of dignity has a long and muddled history. One can't trace any clear line back through any particular tradition, including the Catholic theological tradition. But it's fair to say that they've erred on the side of denial rather than affirmation. One might find shreds of um, dignity of other species and other aspects of creation in people like Thomas Aquinas. But there's a certain contradiction goes on if you start probing. I think Pope Francis is probably the first pope to authoritatively attribute intrinsic dignity to non-human species. But that, and that to me is something very interesting and well worth theological reflection and development on that theme. He says, um, an inadequate presentation of Christian anthropology gave rise to a wrong understanding of the relationship between human beings and the world. Often what was handed on was a Promethean vision of mastery over the world, which gave the impression that the protection of nature was something that only the faint-hearted cared about. Instead, our dominion over the universe should be understood more properly in the sense of responsible stewardship. And he also says there can be no ecology without an adequate anthropology. So again, a fundamental change in our understanding of what it means to be, to be human beings who participate in the being of God. Um, I think it was Herbert McCabe who said when we read Thomas Aquinas, we must see God's being as a verb and not as a noun. God's being is the doing of the world. And in Laudato see that sense of all creation participating in the being of God and in some sense being revealing of God in ways that each species and each aspect of creation has a unique revelation of God to offer. And the more the species become extinct, the more we lose our capacity actually to discern God within the created order. So that's one of the big concerns in Laudato Si'. But I thought I would just give an example of what I think is uh, this Promethean vision of mastery that Pope Francis refers to. Now, if we read Populorum Progressio and Laudato Si, the social justice vision is similar. They are both driven by a passion for those who are poor and excluded and marginalized. But Populorum Progressio in 1968, Pope Paul VI's encyclical, was um, a geopolitical document. And Laudato Si is a biopolitical document. And there is a, a real change in the understanding of where the human being belongs within the world. So in Populorum Progressio, the world is mapped by politics, nation states, international relations. Those things, of course, matter in Laudato Si. We're not going to have a kind of ecological revolution without them. But 
the understanding of our habitation of the earth is completely different. Endowed with intellect and free will, each man, by the way, I don't change everything to inclusive language because I think sometimes that um, falsifies the sort of textual record. And here, I could have changed it because, as you probably know, the Latin is perfectly in order to use more inclusive language. But I don't think this is an inclusive vision of anthropology, so I've left it as man. Endowed with intellect and free will, each man is responsible for his self-fulfillment, even as he is for his salvation. He is helped and sometimes hindered by his teachers and those around him. Yet whatever the outside influences exerted on him, he is the chief architect of his own success or failure. Utilizing only his talent and willpower, each man can grow in humanity, enhance his personal worth, and perfect himself. Now this really is the autonomous Western man of reason. It really is quite a worrying understanding of what it means to be human if we consider it from the light of Laudato Si', which has a relational, interdependent, interconnected anthropology. Um, Pope Francis tries to kind of steer a middle ground between a sort of um, an ecological vision that would collapse the human being into every other species so that the uniqueness of the human would be taken away. But also this kind of anthropos, what he calls excessive anthropocentrism, <coughs> where um, this idea of quite a male idea of the independent, <coughs> autonomous, self-governing subject is the subject of Populorum Progressio. Um, and when I read that, I find myself thinking of this wonderful paternalistic <laughs> vision of the imperial man. <laughs> right. So, as opposed to that, perhaps, from Laudato Si, Pope Francis says, an authentic humanity calling for a new synthesis seems to dwell in the midst of our technological culture, almost unnoticed, like a mist seeping gently beneath a closed door. Will the promise last, in spite of everything, with all that is authentic, rising up in stubborn resistance? I think that is such an inspiring vision. How do we learn to let all that is authentic in us rise up in stubborn resistance. I'm not sure he's yet really encouraging women to do that, but I'll come to that later. <laughs> <laughs> what do we have to do to listen to this new vision and allow it to emerge among us? So I come to the second part, silence and beholding. Max Picard, who is another writer I've discovered recently, along with Joseph Piper, I'm discovering that Catholic philosophers and writers writing at the end of the Second World War in the late 40s and early 50s are speaking very much to our times today. Max Picard's book, A World of Silence, he writes in 1948, today with the lack of silence, Man cannot be recreated, he can only develop. Development takes place not in silence, but in the to and fro of discussion. Grief and silence also belong together. On the river of tears, 
Madden travels back into silence. How do we discern the river of tears for our suffering world and suffering humanity and travel back into the kind of silence that can allow that authentic humanity to rise up in stubborn resistance among us? This is the glorious vision at the heart of Laudato Si. Um, some of this comes from Patriarch Bartholomew, the Greek Orthodox Patriarch, who is um, a very fine writer and speaker on the environment. And this vision of there is a mystical meaning to be found in a leaf, in a mountain trail, in a dewdrop, in a poor person's face. The ideal is not only to pass from the exterior to the interior, to discover the action of God in the soul, but also to discover God in all things. Now, I find that idea of passing from the exterior to the interior really important, because as we all probably know, in the Christian tradition, in the Catholic mystical tradition, there has been a tendency to see prayer and getting closer to God as an ascent away from the body. So the more we can ascend out of the body, the more we are equipped to contemplate things of God, whether through direct union, as some mystics like Catherine of Siena would say, or through only putting our hand through the keyhole, as Gregory of Nyssa says in an, an analogy drawn from the Song of Songs. But this idea that the body is somehow an impediment to prayer, I think in our age, because we are all groomed, if you like, by a culture of rational abstraction, and we're deeply infected with the sense that the body is an obstacle to God in some way, which is a pretty bizarre idea for the religion of the incarnation to have God at its heart. But we do have that in our tradition particularly, of course, the sexual body. So my suggestion would be that we need to start seeing prayer as an inward journey into the roots of bodiliness and creation. Maybe once we are in that place of deep, deep insight and empathy into materiality, maybe then there is room for some kind of transcendence. I'm not sort of advocating a radical imminence that, that would never actually get a more transcendent picture. But I think because we are so accustomed to overvaluing transcendence and abstraction, it's very helpful to think of prayer now as a journey inwards to the body. How does my heart beat when I pray? How does my stomach rumble when I pray? What kind of desires are coursing through my body as I pray? Do I move? Do I dance? Do I sing? What's going on? What am I looking at when I pray, and am I seeing beneath the surface? For another um, paper I'm working on at the moment, I'm looking at Psalm 139, Oh God, you search me and you know me, and I'm reading Robert Alter's wonderful book on the Psalms, and he makes the point that the Hebrew language doesn't have a concept of the soul or of salvation. Um, we need to get a far more visceral sense of what we're talking about when we talk about God and the human. We're not talking about, um, when we talk about nefesh, breath, we're talking about the throat, we're talking about the neck, we're not talking about 
you know, some abstract spirit that's kind of lifting us out of bodiliness. So I think there's this call to make an inward movement um, in order to understand. And of course, that takes the one thing that is squeezed out of our lives today, leisure. And again, this is Joseph Pfeiffer. Leisure is a form of silence, of that silence which is the prerequisite of the apprehension of reality. Only the silent hear, and those who do not remain silent do not hear. For leisure is a receptive attitude of mind, a contemplative attitude, and it's not only the occasion, but also the capacity for steeping oneself in the whole of creation. Reading this book was an eye-opener to me because he shows just how imbued we are with a culture of utilitarianism, functionality, and an anthropology which only understands human beings in terms of work and productivity. And the cost to us of what it means to be human, whether we're on the right or on the left, of only thinking that the most important fundamental thing about human beings is to do with economics. And to a greater or lesser extent, I think we can all very easily slip into that. Um, I think the story of the woman who anointed Jesus is so important for us that there is not a price on everything. Sometimes the extravagant gesture of worship, the beautiful cathedral, the glory of God expressed in something that is absolutely useless, and maybe even wasteful, um, has something to say to us. Um, I remember once long ago when I was a very new Catholic learning my way and I had a spiritual advisor, which was also a new thing, who was a lovely sister called S Sister Bernadette. And I remember going to her one day and saying, I don't believe it. I've just spent more money on clothes and I don't need another dress. She said, you go and put that dress on and look gorgeous when your husband comes home from work and enjoy it now you've got it. And I just, I often think of that. I think if we've bought something, if we've done something extravagant, enjoy it. There's nothing worse than mean-spirited extravagance and guilt. <laughs> <laughs> now, a particular source that I find helpful on this is Maggie Ross's beautiful little book, Writing the Icon of the Heart. Maggie Ross is an Anglican hermit and a theologian. I'm just finding my note because I need to remember what I want to say about it. And she focuses on the significance of the word behold in this book. And it's a form of attentiveness that goes far, far beyond looking or seeing. It's looking with the inner eye. It's um, the seeing heart, if you like. And she points out that in Hebrew and Greek versions of the Bible, the imperative form of the word, <coughs> the word behold occurs more than 1,300 times. She says that after God had blessed the newly created humans, the first word he speaks to them directly is behold. <coughs> By contrast, in the New Revised Standard Version, the word behold appears only 27 times in the Old Testament and the Apocrypha, and not at all in the New Testament. So, a bit like those Hebrew bodily words, there's something about this attentiveness and beholding God in creation that doesn't always get communicated through our translations of scripture. So what does it mean to behold? Now I want to use a little bit of art. 
By the way, everything I'm referring to here, I've put in a bibliography, and Amanda Dillon has a, a link to the PowerPoint slides and the bibliography, so if you're wanting to know who did that or what was that, you can have the whole presentation if you ask Amanda for the link. <laughs> this is a sculpture, a sculptor called Edward Robinson, who, this is called Resurrection Six, and this is it in its closed state. Robinson did beautiful works of abstract liturgical art. And he used to say that he really regretted the fact that a person coming to his studio or to any of his exhibitions would immediately go and open up the triptych to see what's inside. He said sometimes he had a, a desire to make the inside and then glue it closed <laughs> so that people would just have to imagine. If we open this up, that's what's on the inside. But to me, that idea of contemplation is that. It's about looking at what appears to our gaze and beholding. We can't prize it open, but we know that the glorious crafting of the visible world is layered and layered and layered and layered with meaning. I mean, in the age of quantum physics, fractals, all these wonders of the natural world that science is showing us, we know that what we look at is not the way things are. I, I always am amused and puzzled by Richard Dawkins being able to square the circle quite so glibly. Um, because actually, if you let the theory of evolution drive your whole science, and then you say, as Dawkins does, isn't it strange that the world we observe, the world our brains tell us, is out there, isn't there at all. And I think, well, that means we're adapting the world to suit us. We're not evolving to suit the world, or we would be quantum selves. More of that if you want to, but I'm not, I'm not a creationist, by the way. I'm not an intelligent design theorist, just in case you think Donald Trump sent me over here. <laughs> but learning to see that beneath what we see, there are miracles to be discovered in creation. Now, this is Stuart Ridley's little, um, sorry, I'm just going to get my slides back up so, so I can keep an eye on what comes next. This is Stuart Ridley's, uh, I'm not going to tell you what it is actually, just tell me who can guess what they're looking at. If you've got £25,000, you can buy it from the Saatchi Gallery, can't <laughs> What are you looking at? A walled enclosure. Mm -hmm. Is the enunciation Could be. It's called the Little Garden of Paradise. And it's a pastiche of this little 15th century painting. I've tried to find out what Stuart Ridley intended, and I can't. So I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt and say that his painting is a very clever commentary on the vacuity, sorry, of um, modern life, language, art, and interpretation. That's the best I can offer for him. So what do you see here? Well, when this was painted, people would read the symbols in a piece of art the way we would read the signs outside the shops on the high street today. 
we must remember they were a largely non-literate culture. Their theological understanding came from preaching and from images. This is the little garden of paradise, and it shows the restoration of the story of Genesis through the incarnation. Christ is tuning the musical instrument down in the front there, because in the medieval understanding of cosmology, musical harmonies were often used to say how sin disrupted the harmonies of creation, and Christ brings everything back into tune. So it's, again, cosmic redemption. Um, I could, I do talks on this for hours, and I don't have time tonight to do that. But the more we look at this, the more multi-layered it is in its revelations. There are something like 40 species of plants depicted there, and something like 20 species of birds, each of them meaning something. So at Mary's feet, there's Lily of the Valley, which some of you will know is often called Our Lady's Tears. And that's because legend has it that when she wept at the foot of the cross, lilies grew up where her tears fell. There's a little um, crossbill, crossbill, I think it's called. It's a little bird with a red breast and a bent beak. And legend has it that its beak was bent when out of pity for the crucified Christ, it went and tried to take the nails out of his hands, and that's why it has a red breast. The woman is picking fruit. That's St. Dorothy. You can know her by her basket. But the tree she's picking fruit from has a twisted branch. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil has been reconciled into a reconciled unity. Mary, on the, on the table, there are the Eucharistic signs of the fruit being eaten and the wine being drunk. Um, the knowledge that was forbidden is the wisdom of the woman reading the book. Right down here in the bottom, we have Satan, symbolized as the serpent, <laughs> but also as if poor old Satan isn't having a bad enough deal, well, the serpent, there's a little monkey chained to the little tree stump there, which is also a symbol of Satan. And the tree stump is probably the root, the stump of Jesse, the rod of Jesse. I could go on and on about this painting, but I won't. But it's just to suggest that if we compare these two, that's what we see when we look. This is what we see when we behold. It's 1452, I think. I can't see my notes on my slide. Um, I'll tell you, I've got it written down here. Um, no, I haven't. I'll tell you when we get to the end. Okay. Now, silence and beholding are important, but to be human is to be a creature of language. We are a linguistic spe species. <laughs> and we don't just sit in silence forever beholding. Again, um, Max Picard's book, A World of Silence, talks about there being an incline from silence to speech. Rowan Williams, in his study of Dostoevsky, talks about how we are driven to narrate without end. There is no end to our narrating, to our writing, to our speaking, because there is something about our quest for meaning that carries us forward into speech all the time. So when we come out of our silence and beholding, what kind of language <coughs> is nurtured in that space of contemplation? I was giving a talk with environmentalist Mary Colwell, and she quoted this little section from Laudato Si. 
Our insistence that each human being is an image of God should not make us overlook the fact that each creature has its own purpose. None is superfluous. The entire material universe speaks of God's love, his boundless affection for us. Soil, water, <coughs> mountains, everything is, as it were, a caress of God. And Mary Colwell says, love, affection, God, caress. Four words I have never heard in any environmental meeting. Please, please, environmental word. Well, can you only use words that are used in poems? Because actually, love of the earth is all about love. It's about our emotional response to what's around us, to what we're part of. So I'm suggesting that when we allow our desire to be awakened by the beauty of God's creation, sometimes a savage beauty, sometimes terror, um, it's not a sentimental beauty, as those who have been caught in storms recently know. Um, when I'm in London, I live on a houseboat on the tidal Thames for work, which I love. But this winter, the tides have been very high. The winds have been very high. And sometimes I just have to time my coming and going with the tides, because in a really high tide, I can't get up or down the gangplank. And it's a really good way of making me aware that our lives are very much controlled by sometimes the savage power of nature and its power over us. So words of love, awakening our sense of wonder and desire. And this has been something that, um, sorry, I just, I've lost my place because I was rummaging. I just want to read something from, where did I put it? I don't seem to have it here. Never mind. Some, will know, some of you will know in Corrida Amazonia, he, there, is a, there are screeds of poetry in Pope Francis's new um, post-synodal apostolic exaltation. It, it's worth reading. There are problems with it, but it's well worth reading. And before that came out, I, I was working on this theory that he is calling us to a new poetics. And he quotes, in particular, a Brazilian poet called Vinicius de Marias, who says, only the humble voice of poetry will save the world. So to me, this reformation of language is at the very heart of Francis's project. And something that's very much of concern to him is how, then, do we speak to each other? And if you look at his um, post-apostolic um, exhortation after the Synod on the Family, which caused so much controversy, there is a really good section there, a short section on what's needed for dialogue, the sections 136 to 141. Now, he's talking about dialogue between married couples, but to me, any group that wants to engage in dialogue can learn from this little section in that document. And if we look at his style of leadership, we see this in practice. Um, people express great frustration that after both these rather controversial synods, what he's produced afterwards seems to be a rather woolly, wafty, indecisive um, reflection. Certainly with Corrida Amazonia, no women deacons, no married priests, but lots of poetry. <laughs> Read tomorrow's tablet to see what I really think about that. Um, but he is living by this belief that it's part of the problem of modern life, what he calls rapidification. Everything's accelerated. 
everything is pushed through. Everything he says is spatial rather than temporal. If we have a spatial view of politics and conversation and what we want to achieve, everything must be crammed into the here and now. If we have a temporal model, we can allow for learning, mistakes, failures. It's an unfolding process. And there must be serious dialogue, which means serious difference, serious conflict, and a quest for what he calls a reconciled diversity rather than a kind of imposed unity. And that's why he doesn't come out after the synods with his document already written, as his predecessors did, and give the authoritative diktat on what the church has to do. That's not his style. This is his style. But what interests me is this, when he says we've got to try to read reality in a Trinitarian way. And again, quoting um, Picard, who I've quoted earlier, he says, when two people are conversing with one another, a third is always present. Silence is listening. Silence is the third speaker in such a conversation. Now, Massimo Borghese has written a very good book on Pope Francis's thought, which shows how deeply shaped he is by both Latin American and Western European philosophers. I don't think American thought gets a look into anything about Pope Francis. <laughs> it's, but um, anyway, be that as it may. Um, but Borghese portrays him as a dialectician in the mode of Hansel's von Balthasar and others. Now, if you read some comments the Jesuit Walter Ong wrote a kind of influential critique of the dialectical method several decades ago now, uh, Mikhail Bakhtin's theory of dialogue proposes a more carnivalesque and um, open-ended way of conversing and communicating. Dialectics is dualistic, it's combative, and it only has room for one side to win. Thomas Aquinas' Sin Theology has the work of dialectics par excellence. And I'm not saying it doesn't have its place. When I teach my students, I actually get them to read part of the sermon to say, your argument is strengthened when you portray the argument you disagree with in the best possible light. Because then you show how good you are when you can out-argue it. If you just mock and weaken your opponents, your own argument doesn't have to be very strong. But Francis is not interested in that one-upmanship. He's not interested in scoring the winning point in a debate. That's not how he understands it. And I see this idea of reading in a Trinitarian way as always that sense that between two there is always the third. There is always God. No Christian conversation is ever between two because there is an attentive, loving space that holds it a responsive, listening, giving space. Lucy Gray, who I will refer to briefly later, is a, um, well, she's not a French feminist, she's a Belgian and says she's not a feminist, but she gets called a French feminist. And she has this idea of the sensible transcendental, which is a space between two, she takes it from Kant, but she, she embodies Kant. When two are together, it's the space that neither of them owns or controls. And she uses the sexual metaphor to say it's a safe space where both can become one without loss of self, because neither of them owns that space. And this is very much 
I think what Francis, I don't think he's read Lucirigre, but I know he has studied Michel de Certeau very deeply, and I think his model of dialogue comes from de Certeau. By the way, when people say he's not a very good intellectual, Benedict was much better. Francis wears his learning lightly because he wants to talk with ordinary people. He is not interested in being remembered as a great theologian or intellectual, but he is really very, very learned. And again, Massimo Borghese's book, if anyone wants to read about that, is a very good guide. Okay, so far so good. Everybody's happy. Isn't that Francis nice? Well, dialogue, listening, reflection, attentiveness. A true ecological approach always becomes a social approach. It must integrate questions of justice and debates on the environment so as to hear both the cry of the earth and the cry of the poor. So this is an attentive church that's listening. And when we listen to Mother Earth, we hear the cry of our mother and sister. Like a sister who we share our life with, a mother who opens her arms to us. She cries out to us because the harm we've inflicted on her. We've come to see ourselves as her lords and masters, entitled to plunder her at will. The violence present in our hearts, wounded by sin, is also reflected in the symptoms of sickness evident in the soil, in the water, etc. That is why the earth herself, burdened and laid waste, is among the most abandoned and maltreated of our poor. She groans in travail. That's the first reference I have ever seen to the fact that motherhood isn't a bed of roses in a modern papal document. It's the first oblique reference to suffering in childbirth that I've seen, but I'm going to say more about that in a little while. But also, Mother Earth here is a helpless feminine victim of man's violence, and man's going to come and save her. She doesn't have a power to answer back. She doesn't have a voice of her own. If she's a maternal feminized presence, she's a victim. And then, oh dear, oh dear, <coughs> Corrida Amazonia. Pope Francis, like his predecessors, has to say why holy orders are inappropriate for women. And like his predecessors, he gets his knickers in a twist around nuptial theology. I'm a fan of nuptial theology in its place and properly interpreted, but that's not what we get in Corrida Amazonia. But we have a really serious problem then, because suddenly we have women are imaged in Mary and men are imaged in Christ. And without women, the church breaks down, communities would collapse. It's for women to sustain them, keep them together and care for them. This is the kind of power that is typically theirs. Who did he listen to? Who does he quote? Who's he talking to? Where's the dialogue? Where are women's voices? They are not there. I have, I think Creed Amazonia is a really inspiring document in many ways. I have never known, in all my years of working with women's groups in the Catholic Church, 
So many women in the last week to have said, enough, I'm out of here. And I don't need to tell people in Ireland when that breaking point is reached or why. But this um, attempt to justify why women cannot be ordained to holy orders, I think as deacons or as priests, flounders on theology that becomes close to heretical. Because if women are not imaged in Christ, women are not saved. What was not assumed was not redeemed. So, Houston, we have a problem. <laughs> the other problem is that hand in hand with this romanticization of the female sexual maternal body goes its demonization. This is Freud. How ungrateful, how short-sighted to strive for the abolition of civilization. What would then remain would be a state of nature, and that would be far harder to bear. She destroys us coldly, cruelly, relentlessly, as it seems to us, and possibly through the very things that occasioned our satisfaction. It was precisely because of these dangers with which nature threatens us that we came together and created civilization, which is also, among other things, intended to make our communal life possible. For the principal task of civilization, its actual raison d'etre, is to defend us against nature. Now, my suggestion is Pope Francis wants to have his cake and eat it, remembering that he's called women the strawberries on the cake. Um, he wants to defend his ecclesial civilization by keeping women under control, because if you let them out, they're going to destroy you. But at the same time, he wants this pattern of inclusivity, and, but you know, we're not excluding you, we're just saying you've got special feminine genius gifts. <laughs> which hold things together. But there are signs of this. Why does Pope Francis call women without pastoral sensitivity, without awareness of the problem? Why does Francis liken procuring an abortion for any reason under the sun to hiring a hitman? Tell a 12-year-old girl dying of sepsis after an illegal abortion in an African clinic, this is a true story, Nobody knows who impregnated her. Her father, her brother, some visitor to the village. Who knows? She died. She hired a hitman. Excuse me, Pope Francis. Is this the poor church that is a field hospital that gets down in the ditch, that smells of the sheep? Where is he when these things happen? I'm coming back to that. <laughs> if Pope Francis wants seriously, to change our way of being in the world and to introduce a new anthropological vision. Why is he not listening to some of these eco-feminist writers who have been writing since the 1970s and 80s? I was in a pub with Michael Cherney one night, who is now a cardinal, but one of Francis's right-hand men. I wouldn't normally be invited into pubs with such people, but somebody got the guest list wrong. And we were, we were drinking. And I said to him, why? And he was one of the people who advised on that see quite closely. I said, why did nobody tell Pope Francis to quote even one feminist? Well, the F word. His beer was down his throat and he was out of there as, as soon as you could look at him. But this is wisdom 
that is to be had by an engagement with scholars who have been working on it for years. The very system that Pope Francis condemns, this dualistic, anthropocentric, abusive system that Laudato Si condemns, was being analyzed and diagnosed long, long before he came to the subject. And absolutely central to it is the positioning of the female body. Laudato Si begins with our mother, our sister, Earth. You know, people say there's no gender in Laudato Si. Laudato Si is groaning under the weight of its own gender. So, um, feminist scholars have been pointing out for years the dangers of a culture that values rationality, abstraction, the man of reason, over nature, the body, femininity, feeling. And the result is you will get a beautiful, good, docile woman, and you'll get the demonized woman. Sarah J. Boss's book, published in 2000, is a wonderful study of how you can track the development of the Western culture of domination, which she does through the Frankfurt School, through changing representations of the Virgin Mary, from the Romanesque virgin and majesty of medieval art to the sweet-faced young virgin today, she shows how from the invention of the plow to the rise of the culture of domination, Mary bears the image of nature in modern Western culture. So let's have a look. <laughs> there is a 12th century virgin in majesty, a force of nature. Nobody is going to mess with that mother. <laughs> I don't know if any of you have ever been to Rock and Madour. But one of the scariest things ever is when you go up those steps at night and there's this kind of big dark virgin in her red glowing place sort of scowling down at you, you're late home again, where have you been? So the virgin in majesty reflecting mother nature in a very different mode. Our Lady of Lourdes, not even of a baby in her arms anymore, not a maternal figure but a, a virginal Max Factor, because you're worth it kind of figure. <laughs> and of course, on the other side is Eve. I don't need to say much about that image, do I? And I just love this. This is one of my favourite medieval images. This is uh, the Archbishop of Salzburg's Missal. <laughs> Note the mirror image. Somewhat wickedly, I know, I imagine the Archbishop of Salzburg saying his prayers at night and trying to get to sleep, and then he stop imagining the Virgin Mary with no clothes on. Because um, that's what it is, isn't it? But note, the robed Virgin, actually very interesting for a work of this era, she is distributing the host to the faithful from the Tree of Life. Uh, the men, yeah, Adam's lying prostrate prostrate with, with this sort of phallic <laughs> rising up. Um, <laughs> it's a fascinating image. And look at death on the side of the naked. Very realistically portrayed Eve. John Ruskin apparently, I think this, they say it's apocryphal, but it is said that on his wedding night he fainted because he knew so much about art but didn't know women had pubic hair. Well, this artist <laughs> and the Archbishop of Salzburg were under no such illusions about what a naked woman looks like. Interestingly enough, 
when I look at some of the art and devotions of the Reformation, and it's just before, in, in Germany in particular, that's northern Germany is where I'm interested in, my question is, was the matriarchal power of the church too much in this era? When you look at the Marian devotions, when you look at the domestic life of Jesus, when you look at art and the female mystics and the women running around the countryside as baggins and doing their own thing, did the Reformation in part constitute a little panic attack um, about this growing power of uh, that matriarchal church? Remember, these figures were all completely um, abolished by the reformers. But the other thing about this romanticization, and I referred briefly to this <coughs> earlier, every year, nearly 300,000 women die from preventable causes relating to pregnancy and childbirth. 99% of these deaths are in the world's poorest communities. And you can see sub-Saharan Africa is the place most affected. Pope Francis has decided, declared this the year of the nurse and the midwife. I wish he would go to a rural African hospital and see wards filled with girls suffering from the effects of illegal and botched abortion, see mothers dying for want of a blood transfusion, see what the reality of poverty is like. The maternal romance hides a deadly and terrible reality. And you cannot be a poor church of the poor, waxing lyrical about motherhood, if you never mention this, and I'm still waiting for somebody to send me the document where a pope does discuss this. People tell me, that's nonsense, of course they do. It's implicit in everything he says. I don't want implicit. I don't think you can be implicit about 300,000 deaths a year, and many, many thousands more permanently disabled with fistulas, with, again, preventable medical causes that are purely the result of poverty and the abuse of women and girls and their inability to control their own sexual environments. Mm. And by the way, scandal waiting to break, I was with an African priest recently and he told me that one of the nuns he met at the airport had missed her flight or something. And he said to her, never mind, you can come back and stay in the presbytery tonight. And she looked a bit, and she said the next morning at breakfast, he said the next morning at breakfast, she was an African nun, she said to him, you know, Father, that's the first time a priest has ever invited me to stay in his house and not expected sex. So, there is work to be done. But what about every development agency and international NGO today that's concerned with sustainable development knows that you have to get women on board. Women are the most affected by environmental degradation. They're the ones who collect firewood and water. They're the ones who must feed children and keep them alive. But they are also in the very forefront of many, many environmental initiatives. And um, somebody emailed me yesterday who is here tonight. Where is she? Is it Helen? <laughs> no? Yes. <laughs> running a wonderful in initiative that you told me about. I haven't looked through all the literature properly yet, but 
So you know what I'm talking about when I talk about women are in the forefront of small projects, agricultural, manufacturing, making biogas in Tanzania, um, making solar panels in a little manufacturing plant in Nigeria. If you educate women, they have the means to affect what it is Pope Francis is wanting to achieve. So this means, if we're talking about language, oops, sorry, don't want to show that yet, uh, taking seriously the sort of change in language that women might make. So there is a, now, hold on, I've lost my place here. Uh, a World Economic Forum report says, the endeavour to protect the earth and survive in the Anthropocene stage requires a collective effort, which, as the Agenda 2030 motto says, cannot leave anyone behind. Gender equality is a prerequisite, and the new world order must include women leading the way, capitalising on their caregiving, education, and nurturing selves. As Neri Oxman said, it demands of us for the first time that we mother nature. Um, UN Women Report, rural women and girls are leaders in agriculture, food security, nutrition, land, managing natural resource management and unpaid and domestic care work. They're at the front line when natural resources and agriculture are threatened. In fact, globally, one in three employed women work in agriculture. You can go on and on and on reading all these reports that emphasise the full and equal participation of women as the sine qua non of sustainable development. Now, I'm not saying Pope Francis doesn't recognise that. The women in Amazonia are very active, and the Amazonian Synod recognised that. But this feminine genius, this keeping women silent and in their place, is the opposite of what women actually do when they are tasked with changing things in their communities and their environments. But also at the level of language. Let me read to you from two Latin American, two Brazilian women theologians. Again, these are writings from the 1980s. Lots of time even for a busy poet to read them. And they are not denying the qualities that Pope Francis attributes to women. You know, often critics of feminists say, oh yes, but you want to be just like men. Pope Francis has this, I can't believe how uninformed the last, he and Pope Benedict are about gender issues. You know, they call it gender ideology. And they seem to think that we're all just gonna go around shopping for our sex. Oh, I'll be a boy today, I'll be a girl today. Chop some body parts off and change it. That's not what issues of gender are about. Um, and it's not about making everyone the same. So I've got two extracts here which show how preserving the kind of language he wants up to a point, that language can be used as a very empowering expression of what women do in communities in a maternal discourse that listens to and learns from women. So this is Eva and Guevara. When women's experience is expressed in a church whose tradition is machistic, the other side of human experience returns to theological discourse, the side of the person who gives birth, nourishes, nurses, of the person who for centuries has remained silent with regard to anything having to do with theology. Now she begins to express her experience of God in another manner, a manner that doesn't demand that reason alone be regarded as the single and universal mediation of theological discourse. 
This way of doing theology includes a discourse that leads to the awareness that there is always something more, something that words can't express. Silence, change in language, all the things Pope Francis wants are there. Maria Clara Bengueva says, throughout Latin America, in the rural areas and poor districts on the edges of cities, there are millions of women conceiving, bearing, and suckling new children of the common people, breaking the bread and distributing it, having communion in the body and blood of the Lord until he comes again, means for women today reproducing and symbolizing in the midst of the community the divine act of surrender and love so that the people may grow and the victory come, which is celebrated in the feast of true and final liberation. If only <laughs> that was the language we were hearing. But just whose voice really is being silenced in all this? These are two consecutive verses from the book of Isaiah. The prophet talks of God in the third person as a hero, a warrior, raising the hue and cry and going out valiantly against his foes. What happens when the divine voice speaks? From the beginning, I have been silent. I have kept quiet, held myself in check. I groan like a woman in labor. I suffocate, I stifle. Thank you.